And now, stay tuned for another episode of the Traumatic States of America. Welcome to the Traumatic States of America. Our main goal is to begin to heal some of the trauma we have suffered both individually and collectively. I am your host, Dr. Lori Hood, and I will be talking with people from all walks of life who have suffered trauma in its myriad forms. Military veterans, attorneys, first responders, football players, stay-at-home moms, and many more. We will hear how trauma has not only affected them, but their families and communities as we take an in-depth look at what science has to offer and what can be done to prevent, mitigate, and help recover from trauma. Welcome to the Traumatic States of America, and today we have Jonna Gann with us. Welcome, Jonna. Hello. Nice to have you here. So let me introduce you. Um, You have over 40 years of experience in the long-term care uh, facility um, profession, and you're a trained nurse. You currently work as a physical therapist assistant, um, and you started in high school at, what, 16? Yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a way to get out of high uh, class. We went to a <laughs> Allied Health course in college mm-hmm. for three hours in the morning. <laughs> so that's how you got started. Yeah, yeah. yeah as, a, as a back in the day when it was just a nurse's aide, we they weren't certified back then, and then it was like you did really good at this. Let's go to high to college and be a nurse, and mm-hmm. here I am. <laughs> yeah, nice. Forty years later, yeah. So. Um, can you tell me how you've seen the industry change? Oh, my goodness. Um, I remember back in the day before insurance was such a big deal. Uh, if people were going out of town, they'd take their grandma or their mom to the hospital to be watched for, you know, forever long. Or if uh, moms needed a break, they just went to the hospital for a week or so, you know, mm-hmm. and then they came home. And then it was in the mid-80s where we started with the classification series. And, of course, now I can't remember what it's called. But the the different things, like if you came from pneumonia or fractured hip or something, they started billing them different way, uh, billing them and charging and paying for them differently through Medicare and such things with insurance. And then we've just moved on up to now they are talking about if a person goes in for a knee replacement surgery, the government will give the the doctor who's doing the the surgery a chunk of money. And then it's up to him to disperse from there, whether, you know, whether it's physical therapy, going into rehab to do some uh, follow up and get stronger and everything to that. They, they, get them in and out really quick. I mean, people used to have babies and they'd be in there for several days and now they can walk out 24 hours later. Right, right. So so the, so the way that, that things are coded and billed to the insurance company and the, the shift in how insurance um, or, or the way insurance has evolved in our country has, it sounds like, put a lot of stress on not only um, patients but their families. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's 
real stressful. And, you know, if, if conditions like a stroke or something, Medicare sets, um, I think it's 100 days uh, oh my. for what they call Medicare A, which is 100% paid okay. your first 100 days. And then after that, you flip to Medicare B, and then you get a certain chunk of money. Right? It's like last I heard, it was like $3,500. And you have to split it between the three um, therapies, speech therapy, occupational therapy, and physical therapy. Okay. And stroke recovery can last for a really long time, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. So so give me an idea of how long, you know, someone comes in with a stroke and they've got 100 days paid 100%. How long does the normal average stroke uh, victim take to recover fully? It just all depends. I'm actually doing a a continuing education course online uh, for stroke certification. And, um, you know, it just depends on the patient. A younger person may not take very long. Mm -hmm. Um, And but an older person, say they've they have um, aphasia, which means they can't talk or they might have global aphasia, which means they don't understand anything you're saying. So when they talk to you, you may get, you know, word jumbles. Okay. And so you're trying to explain, but they can say they can walk really good. So speech has to go in there and work with them. Or you may get somebody that's got hemiparesis, which is one side uh, is paralyzed and you're having to um, work with balance and sitting, being able to sit yourself up out of bed, being able to sit on the side of the bed, being able to stand up. And in the meantime, you know, they they may have uh, that spasticity, you know, where you see the arm pull up and stuff like that. Okay. So you have to try to work with that. And then you, uh, they may have difficulty swallowing. Oh, my. And so, um, you know, they are silent aspirators, which means when they swallow, it goes down into their lungs. Oh, my goodness. And okay, so, so wait, wait, wait. So even I'm feeling overwhelmed a little bit here. So, <laughs> so I'm, I am thinking about... Um, that that after a hundred days, you send my parent or my aunt or an elderly person I love home to me with very limited amount of um, Medicare coverage, I suppose. And it's up to me then to to take care of all this stuff. Um, uh, generally, they try to get some home health coming in, right? And home health may show up a couple of times a week whatever they de- deem necessary. And, um, you know, yeah, oh. when they come out of the hospital, the the idea is if they're doing really good, we send them to an acute rehab, which is focuses on nothing but that. And they get three hours of therapy a day. Mm-hmm. And all of that is to get them so to where they are functionally able to get themselves out of bed and functionally able to go home. Right. And, you know, we try to set the families up at that point in time. You can have um, uh, home health come out and you may get a physical therapist or, you know, occupational or speech, whatever, you know, their highest need is. But like I said, you you have a certain cap. And at that point in time, they have to write a letter to Medicare to um, ask for more money. Okay. So so. So I'm, I'm just, so as a traumatologist, I'm, I'm like seeing stress and, and, you know, potential trauma here. Um, and 
So there are also people who don't have a family. Right. And so what happens to them if the, if the, the, the money runs out, for lack of better words? Uh, they usually stay at the nursing home, at the you know, long-term care facility. And at a certain point in time, if they have care workers, caseworkers that um, monitor this. There's usual, usually a social worker there in the facility and they handle that kind of stuff. And at midpoint, they'll start trying to get them over to Medicaid, mm-hmm. you know, to help pay for that. And then they just stay there at the at the, the facility. Oh, my gosh. How sad. You know, okay. and um, hmm. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, wow. I'm, I'm feeling really sad right now. Um, yeah, it so, is. Yeah. So kind of this is what this podcast is really about is trying to sort of explore um, the the experience of populations who are sort of silent. Um, one of my podcast guests said that her, the population she works with is invisible, and I feel like this population is as well. I want to shift a little bit. So what I, what I would like to focus on is your experience or the experience of people who are, are, are dedicated to helping, um, you know, our elderly. So, you know, I, I'm just hearing about it, and I'm, I do feel sad. And my thought is that you, as someone who has worked closely with a, another human being, um, you know, you you you're in you're in close contact. You're you're rooting for them. You're you're hoping they get better. You're giving them your skills and your education and your experience and your expertise. And to watch the system, for lack of better words, um, sort of let them down. What is that like for you? It's very frustrating. Yeah, it's very frustrating, and you, you you try to go to bat for them as much as you can, but unfortunately, once they have used up their therapy, um, they're not allowed to come in and use the gym and stuff until they reach a point where um, maybe they're not transferring as well, or they're not walking as well, or they've fallen a couple of times, which triggers something them to come back to therapy and that's how we get them back it's a reactive system then so basically the system has to um have something has to have happened to the individual to prove to the system that they need ongoing therapy correct and uh the nice thing is at the at the facilities they also have what they call a restorative nurse so once we get them um ready to be just getting close to be discharged from therapy, we write up a little program and we give it to the restorative nurse and it's up to them to do these uh, ex- certain exercises with them um, or walking, uh, whatever is necessary as what we call a maintenance program. Uh, those are good for somebody like with Parkinson's, mm-hmm. you know, because with Parkinson's it's a degenerative disease. Right. And so um, you try to keep them if you discharge them, you know that they're going to come back because it's degenerative. So if you can, Medicare also does pay for a maintenance program so where they come in and try to do, you know, a couple of, maybe once or twice a week, uh, if it's outpatient therapy to keep them strengthened. If they're in a facility, they may be seen two to three times by the restorative nurse to try to maintain their strengths, their functional mobilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, reduce fall risk. Right, right. Okay. So 
So I, I, I kind of got us back off track again, but tell me about your experience. So have you ever sort of hit the wall? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes because when they come in, you know, you're, you're getting somebody that say they fractured their hip and they have to come in for rehab to be able to go home. Cause they have stairs. They got to climb. They, they live in a two story house and their bedrooms upstairs. And so these people, they used to be very independent and maybe they're a little bit grouchy or maybe they have dementia and you're trying to get them being able to go home and sometimes they're resistant. So you may be asking them to do things they don't really want to do yeah, in the moment yeah. and in their frame of mind. So, Right, you know, and, and you may go down and say, okay, it's time for therapy and they're like, I don't want to. Well, yeah. I'm sorry that that's why you're here, right. you know, and you run into that. And there's a concept I want to put out there to the audience because I think it's really, really important. And I know that it, 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 um, well, I think it was first studied on nurses. So that would, you know, you would qualify for that, but, um, it's called compassion fatigue. And, you know, for those of you who are listening, I'm sure you know what this is, right, Jonna? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for our listeners who don't know what it is, compassion fatigue is a condition characterized by emotional and physical exhaustion, leading to diminished ability to empathize or feel compassion for others. It's often described as the negative cost of caring. So compassion fatigue is something that sort of runs, sort of dovetails with the work I do. Um, and the way I sort of like to think about it is someone who has to care for others to such an extent that they're not able to care for themselves. So it's, it makes sense that, you know, people in your profession, Jonna, um, nurses, um, psychotherapists, sometimes coaches, those of us who are in the help doctors, um, emergency responders, those of us who are in the helping fields, that's our job. And we usually choose that job because we're pretty good at it. But there comes a time when the amount going out, the, the amount of caring that you're doing, does not get balanced by enough coming in. Either you don't have a, a partner or a friend or someone that can sort of fill you back up, or you may have kids at home, or you may have something else that needs your care, you know, animals. So, I mean, I think this is a really important concept, and I think it has to do with this podcast because I think there's not a huge line between compassion fatigue and extreme stress and into trauma or potential trauma. So if you could, do you have any stories that you could share with us about either yourself or someone else who, and maybe it was somebody else, and maybe you could describe what it was like to watch someone sort of lose their ability to care because they had given way too much and they weren't getting anything back in their life? Well, yeah, um, there have been times even when, uh, I was working and sometimes say they're shorthanded or something like that. And, or you get attached to a certain patient and you're really invested in working with them and working with them and you watch them, even though you're doing the best and the nurses are doing the best, you begin to watch them decline and it's really sad. And then you go home and there's really no one to chat with mm -hmm. and and you go back to it and you see it day after day and it, and you see not just them, but others come in and, 
at a certain point in time, you wake up in the morning and you're like, I don't want to do this no more. I can't. You lay there in bed and cry because you got to go to work and you know what you're going to walk into. Right. So what do you do with that? Or what, ha- what have you tried that, you know, whether it's worked or not, what have you tried? <laughs> Sometimes I just have to, uh, I have to go for long rides in my car with the radio on listening to my favorite music with the, you know, knob turned firmly to the right. <laughs> I've learned about meditation. Um, sometimes call up one of my friends and just like, you know, here I am, I'm going to vent, <laughs> be prepared. And that's what you do. And, and that gives you a little bit more, uh, it cleans, it cleans it out. So you're able to go back and do it again. Uh, you see it a lot of times in families that, uh, as you said, like with patients that go home and they're caring for their family all the time. And, and in the morning, the wife has to go to work, you know, and the husband has to go to work. And when they come home, they have to handle the family member and it, they just never get a break from anything. And then and sometimes as the patient begins to slip, they don't see it because they're right there on it. And then um, if you happen to notice somebody that's going on through something like that, suggest to them, you know, hey, let's bring a home health person in here so you can get a break. There's respite care mm-hmm. where you can send them somewhere so the family can take like a, a month, a couple weeks or so, whatever they need to get it back together. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard. It is hard. And, and you know, that's why so I've sort of identified through this conversation with you there are, you know, several places where people are just um, sort of given more than they can handle. So the patient, you know, clearly, um, the family of the patient, and then I would also think that those who are members of the family, like children or dogs or cats or you know pets or um, extended family, if if the the primary caregivers of that elderly patient when that patient comes home are giving everything to the to the family member who needs it most probably then others suffer as well because they're not getting much and and so it's sort of like a ripple effect but then i also can see where you and your coworkers are under extreme stress and while it seems like you have the ability and the and the knowledge to reach out and you know what works for you you know not term firmly, firmly to the right um, you know you know what works for you, and probably the 40 years of experience has helped you figure that out. But, you know, I, I would think that, you know, young people coming into this system as it is now, you know, you've just, you described in the beginning of the podcast how it's changed over time, um, they're probably not prepared for all this. Right. And and I see that with young nurses that come in, they're fresh out of school, and they're all excited. Yay, we're going to save the world. And they get stressed out by the the load, the weight of what's going on. And so um, I try to tell them, hey, you know, take a deep breath. Nothing's bad's going to happen. And when you get done, figure out a way that when you walk out the door of this facility, you leave it at the facility. You've got to learn to make boundaries between where you're working and when you're home. Because you can't take work at home. And consequently, you can't take home to work. Oh, that's beautiful. And that's a real line that you have to learn to do. And 
um, you know, cultivate activities outside of work that is brings you pleasure and helps you relax and wind down, whether it's hiking, biking, swimming, you know, going to the YMCA to do Zumba classes, you know. Yeah, it really doesn't matter. Some sort of outlet. Yeah, some sort of outlet. Right. Too. Yes. You will. It gets to you. And then you may have a favorite person that um, passes away. And that's hard. And then you got to come back the next day. And Oh, my. And look at an empty bed or somebody else in that bed. Yeah, I just, I'm envisioning it. There's just so many cues and triggers and things that I, I can, you know, after talking to you, I can see. Um, so <laughs> I just I just want to commend you for, from someone who, you know, does the, the, the psychologist side of this. You know, the fact that you brought up boundaries and that, you know, leave, you leave work at work and go home and find, some, you know, that's, that's so beautiful and that you're teaching young nurses those, those you know, skills because it's super important. And I think it's becoming more important, you know, with COVID-19 and what's going on today. Um, you know, you guys are placed in a really scary spot, but, you know, you're still care workers and, and um, you know, it's, it's... Still have to go. Still got to go, right. Okay, well, Jonna, thank you so much. Um, I, this was really enlightening to me. I think I'm going to have to go for a walk just to kind of shake off some of it wow well you're most welcome you're very welcome it was nice chatting with you that was john again a woman who has devoted over 30 years of her life to caring for the elderly in our society i wasn't quite sure what she would share with us when i asked her to come on the show and it took me a little while to digest everything that she told us i had to sit down and be still just to grapple with what seemed like strands or tentacles that came from one event, the decision to place an elderly loved one in a facility. In addition to all the things that Ms. Gann explained, like how insurance has changed over three decades and the cap on its benefits, the stress on family members, nurses, and other facility therapists, there are so many other things that create stress and the potential for trauma. One of the things in the research literature that I feel is particularly important with regard to the decision to place an elderly loved one into a long care facility or even a rehabilitation facility is the idea that we don't just grieve someone after they die. We grieve the loss of a life as we knew it. That and guilt. Even if there's no real decision to be made, even if those who love an elderly person know that the very best care they can get is within a facility, my guess is most people feel really guilty about having to make that choice. I could go on and on and continue to describe how I see these threads or tentacles wrapping around one another until they become an indistinguishable ball of stressors. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time to come. And maybe... If you come across someone who has a loved one in an elderly facility, you might just ask them how they're doing. Thank you for listening to the Traumatic States of America. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Lori Hood, go to LoriHoodPhD.com. The Traumatic States of America podcast is produced and engineered by Band Ala Productions at their studio in Washington, D.C.